Okay. Um, join me in the word of God in Ezekiel 47, verses 13 and 14. Thus says the Lord, this is the boundary by which you shall divide the land for inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions, and you shall divide equally what I swore to give to your fathers. This land shall fall to you as your inheritance. And then Ezekiel 48, verses 30 through 35. These shall be the exits of the city. On the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi. The gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be, The Lord is There. This is the very word of God. All right, so today we bring our study of the book of Ezekiel to a close, and as we have seen, the book of Ezekiel closes with a lengthy nine-chapter uh, description of a vision that Ezekiel received in the 25th year of his exile in Babylon. Uh, we've noted that this final vision is a vision of hope. As Ezekiel gets a glimpse of a new temple in Israel, with Israel's God again dwelling in his temple, it is what we might call in theological terms an eschatological vision. It's very much like the one that the Apostle John received in the book of Revelation. In fact, as we've noted throughout our study of Ezekiel's concluding vision, John's concluding vision in the last two chapters of Revelation depend on these concluding nine chapters in Ezekiel. In other words, it seems as if John has taken Ezekiel's final vision and built upon it, explaining to us how it is that the coming of Jesus in the first century A.D. has brought Ezekiel's final vision to completion. Now, don't miss that point. We've tried to really make it plain all throughout, especially these last nine chapters, and we're going to see it again today. Revelation 21 to 22, the last two chapters in your Bible, certainly have something to tell us about what is not yet seen on earth, events that are still ahead of us, still in our future. But so many Christians have been taught to read them only that way. My guess is most of us have been taught to only read them that way. 
What we need to learn to do is to see the present implications now that Jesus has already come and put flesh on the bones of Ezekiel's final vision. I think that's what John was wanting to communicate to the churches when he wrote Revelation 21 to 22, when he has his final eschatological vision. It is a a culmination of Ezekiel's vision given the fact that the Messiah of Israel has already come. And in Ezekiel's final vision, as we've noted, there are three major components now to be understood more concretely because of Jesus. We've seen that the, uh, the temple that Ezekiel saw was not, in fact, a real, like, made out of stone building or structure. It is Jesus himself, the new temple. Revelation 21, 22 makes that plain. This means that the Torah, the new law that Ezekiel was given, had to be redefined around a new temple that's not made of hands, not made of brick and mortar, but made of the incarnate flesh of the Son of God. So that this law that God's people must follow begins and ends with complete allegiance to Jesus above all else. And now the final part of Ezekiel's vision has to do with how the land of Israel is to be divided up among Israel's 12 tribes. And we began this conversation last week with Ezekiel's moving description of a river, a river of life flowing from the temple. We noted how the New Testament makes this image explicitly linked to what happens to all those who believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is given to all those who are united by faith to Jesus such that they become something like tributaries of the river of life, bringing living water and healing to the land. Now, as we bring Ezekiel's vision to a close, he hears about the boundaries of the land in the rest of chapter 47. The division of the land among Israel's tribes in the first 29 verses of chapter 48. And then, that last text there that Mark read for us describes the gates or the exits of the city in the final six verses of the book. So what are we going to do with this material? In light of the coming of Jesus, what does Ezekiel's final vision of the division of the land, the gates of the city, have to do with us? What does Jesus and his first coming tell us about the land, the promised land, as we await his second coming? And what we can say is that Christ came to save his people so that his world, his land, can be faithfully stewarded by them. Christ came to save his people so that his world, his land, could be faithfully stewarded by his redeemed people. That is what we are called to do right now. That's our job description. That's why you have life as a Christian right now in God's world. So let's think about this as we consider from Ezekiel's concluding words, first, the importance of the land, Second, the division of it. And then third, the way we are to make use of it. 
the importance of the land, the division of it, and the way we are to steward it, the way we are to make use of it. So first, the importance of the land. In order to see how important the land is, we have to keep in mind the great story of Israel found in the Old Testament. It's why we've, <laughs> we've kind of parked in the Old Testament for a whole calendar year. I, I think because so many of us Christians are pretty unfamiliar with the story, we just kind of turn to the New Testament, sort of don't know what to do with much of the Old Testament. But we're trying to park here because until we understand the great story in the Old Testament, the great story of Israel, it'll be difficult for us to connect the dots of what it means for us as Christians living in the age we're in now. So this story, this great story, does not, of course, begin with Israel. you got to go back a little bit further. Like, I don't know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the story doesn't begin with Israel, but with Israel's God. Every nation on earth, of course, had their God or their gods. And by the way, we noted a couple weeks ago, this nation is no different. No matter how secular the claim might be, every nation has their God or their gods. What made Israel unique was their claim to have only one God who was also the God of gods and the creator of all there is. Israel's King David gave thanks to this God who was revealed by the sacred name Yahweh, boasting that while all the gods of the people are worthless idols, Yahweh made the heavens and was worthy of worship, not just among Israel, but among all the peoples of the earth. So when we talk about the land, and I mean, of course, the the <laughs> The heavens and the earth, everything that God made in Genesis 1-1. When we talk about the land, we first have to note that the land belongs to God and to God alone. No one else could lay claim to be the rightful owner of the land. God made it, and so it belongs to him. It is his. But the Bible quickly moves on to why God made it. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? And Israel and Israel's great story was quite clear about this as well, so we Christians should be clear about it. The prophet Isaiah spoke of Israel's God as the one who created the heavens and formed the earth this way. This is Isaiah 45, 18. God did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. The earth was designed to be a home for all sorts of living creatures. And the God who alone could claim the right to the land, by the way, insisted that he intended to come and dwell right there in his land with his creatures. The land then is where all the action takes place. Where God and his creatures are meant to interact. The place that we call earth is the stage for the display of God's glory. And we who live in it are actors in the great drama of glory. 
That's an unchanging feature of Israel's story. Beginning with Abraham, God made a covenant with his people, promising to give them a land where he would bless them and make them a blessing to the whole earth. Genesis 12. I'm going to put you in a land and from there bless you and make you a blessing to the rest of the earth. The land then is important not only because God is creator of it, but also because God is a covenant maker. The land belonged to God, but God, by covenant, promised the land to his people. That's why Israel's great story always has in its, in its framework the importance of the land. You read the Old Testament, you're going to see it over and over and over again. Part of Israel's Torah has to do with how the land is to be managed, who has rights of inheritance to the land. Because God, in order to keep his covenant with them, the people have to inhabit his land. The land was not just then a symbol of God's promise. It was the place where his promise was realized. The means through which Israel's God would bless his people and turn them into a blessing to the world. So as we look at our text this morning, what you're going to find right here at the very beginning is the land is described as Israel's inheritance. That's what verse Verse 12, verse 13 says, that's the word that gets at both of these aspects of the land that we are considering here. The land is God's land. Israel's right to it is only as an inheritance, as verse 13 says. It is what God has given to his people as a gift. But like an inheritance, it's valuable. And God's people are supposed to make good use of it as stewards of what God has given to them by grace. They are to possess the land as faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to their care. What then is the importance of land in the New Testament context? When you turn to the New Testament, what do you see about the land? Well, it's not very explicit, and so actually many commentators kind of gloss over this. But given the fact that the New Testament claim is that Israel's great story has been brought to its climax in Jesus, we can get at some important implications. First, we can see the reality of the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven necessarily implies a place where God's rule is to be manifest, is to be seen is to be evident. Christians believe that in Jesus, the future kingdom of God has broken in on the present. And if that is true, then the place where we should see evidence of the kingdom of God is in the land that we inhabit today. Second, this means not only that we should be looking for that evidence in the past, but we should also be working for that evidence in the present. God's kingdom now means that you and I, who claim to be counted among the renewed people of God, redefined in Jesus, have been given work to do in the land today. When we claim as Christians that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated already on earth, and 
by now we are well acquainted with this, that crosstown, right? No debate. Kingdom of God has already come. If you're claiming that, then we who are calling ourselves Christians are also committing ourselves to be workers for this kingdom reality on earth. Does the New Testament substantiate these implications? Well, consider this. When Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples everywhere, on every nation on earth, does this not then imply that the promised land that he envisioned was now enlarged to include every single place on earth? No longer would people need to come to Jerusalem to worship God's people would live in God's land and could worship him rightfully anywhere. Like right here. You don't have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. I mean, we should go sometime. That'd be fun. But you don't have to go there to get closer to God. The New Testament implication of the Great Commission is that the promised land no longer has those kinds of boundaries. It's where all of the people that God made inhabit today. And then making use of that land in ways that honor God would mean that the glory of God would be seen literally everywhere. The earth, the prophets saw, foretold, would be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. So the global mission of God in the New Testament means the global encounter with God through his people who inhabit every nation on earth and by the work that they do for God's kingdom in those nations. That's why the land is important. It's the display. It's the theater. It's the stage for the unfolding of God's great drama. Now, the success of that mission, success of that great drama, then depends, as you see, given your place in the land, it depends on God's people faithfully stewarding the land that they were given as an inheritance. But I want you to notice next from our text how the land is divided up among the people of God. Notice how the land is divided. And to me, the most striking thing that we find in these last two chapters is the unique way that the land is divided among Israel's 12 tribes. We are given this information in the first 29 verses of chapter 48. Now, you can skim it if you want, but let me just tell you, with, with all respect, it's not very interesting reading. That's why I didn't ask Mark to read those verses today. But, as commentators have done, the map that emerges from the material given to us in chapter 48 is quite interesting. Essentially, get your, get, your, get, get, your, uh, get your land of Israel map in your head. You got it? You've read maps at the end of your Bible. You could turn there if you want. Um, here's what you're going to see. Each of the 12 tribes is given a space of land rectangular in shape 
stretching from the Mediterranean Sea on the west to the eastern boundary. Most of the time, it's the Jordan River. So that's, that's how the map is now redrawn. It's very different from the way the, the land was divided among Israel's tribes when they first went into the promised land in the book of Joshua. Commentators observe that this picture, this map, like the one of the temple itself that we've already studied in this final vision, is unrealistic and must be meant to imply and, and must not be meant to imply some literal fulfillment. So the same mistake that people often make here is the one they make with Ezekiel's vision of the temple, thinking that this temple is meant to actually be built in some way. So what does it imply then? What's, what's the whole point of this kind of redrawn map, which is idealistic, uh, geographically impossible? What, what does it imply? Well, throughout chapter 48, and if you had a Hebrew text, it would stand out a little bit more clearly, the, the repeated words, one portion, in chapter 48, for each of the tribal allotments, implies that a primary interest in this map is establishing equality among the tribes. Every tribe has a share, roughly equal in size to each of the others. Again, it's an idealized image, but the emphasis here seems to be on the fact that in the coming kingdom of God, from Ezekiel's standpoint, in the coming kingdom of God, every tribe in the people of God will have an equal share of the responsibility for stewarding the inheritance. No one will be able to say, no tribe would be able to say, well, I'm insignificant in the kingdom of God. To each is given a share of the inheritance so that no one can say that their stewardship of the inheritance doesn't really matter. Now, at the same time, the picture that emerges from the division of the land here in chapter 48 is that though each of the tribes receives something of an equal share of the land, all the land belongs to all of Israel together. Are you with me? Can you, can you, can you hold that in your head? In her commentary on Ezekiel, Margaret O'Dell points out that the word inheritance is not used for any one of the 12 portions it's only used to describe the entire land. So in the kingdom of God, the land is to be stewarded collectively by the people of God. We might say that the stewardship of the land is a team effort with each given a role to play rather than an individual performance. Here's your Inheritance, go do with it as you please. No, I, I care about how you're doing with your part of the inheritance because it's all of ours. Does that make sense? All right, how then does the New Testament make this image more concrete? So what? What about us today? All right, well, consider what we are, in, what we are told about the inheritance in the New Testament. You don't find a lot of explicit language about the land, but you know what you do find? This talk about the inheritance. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, God has now, in Christ, made plain his great plan all along. He's brought it to fulfillment, he says. 
Here's the great plan, according to Paul in Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. His plan all along is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, Paul is bursting with excitement as he writes Ephesians chapter 1. You can't help but see that as he writes. He's bursting with excitement. Don't you see what's happened? Don't you see what has happened in Jesus? In Jesus, the world that we inhabit today has been united with heaven. Joined together in the way that God meant for the two to be from the beginning. In other words, the promised future has already broken in, overlapping with this present evil age. As Christians, we too are united in Christ and, according to Ephesians 1.11, have obtained an inheritance. There it is. Don't miss it because that's what Ezekiel saw. The importance, the inheritance given to the redeemed and restored people of God has already happened in Christ. Now, a few verses later in Ephesians 1, Paul says that we who believe in Jesus have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is God's assurance given to us now that when we have come to fully have our inheritance in the future, it will be just like it is now, the presence of God in our midst. Just like is already true, the Holy Spirit dwelling among God's people, in God's people, Here's what one commentator says. The Spirit marks us out, stamps us with God's official seal as the people in the present who are guaranteed to inherit God's new world. You've already been given that taste, that stamp of that future inheritance. Now, to be a Christian, then, to trust in Christ is to be given God's Holy Spirit. Listen to me. You can no more say you are a Christian but do not possess the Spirit than you can say you are alive but have no breath. You also cannot say that you have more or less of God's Spirit than your brother or sister sitting next to you. Don't make that mistake. Well, I'm pretty insignificant, pretty immature in the faith, so I have less of the Spirit. Wrong. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He can't be broken up. He cannot come to you in parts and pieces. Now, I realize this morning, some of you sitting here, you may not know that you have the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to tell you, that's partly because we have created a lot of controversy in the Christian faith about the Holy Spirit's presence and power in our lives. You know that. You just go to a different church and you'd be like, well, I don't know. It seems like there's more Holy Spirit here than somewhere else. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, 
that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And there we see it. What Ezekiel saw, each of us has an equal share of the inheritance because we've all been given the same Holy Spirit. But we've been given this Spirit for the common good, Paul says. Again, Margaret O'Dell says that this map in Ezekiel 48, with equal proportions of the one inheritance, suggests the creation of an inclusive and moral community rooted in the worship of God and committed to justice and equity for one another. And then the New Testament then makes it all plain. This is what God is up to in creating in Jesus one new humanity, Paul says in Ephesians 2.15. Look back at Ezekiel 47.22. Ezekiel sees this vision. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. So even back in the Old Testament... He says, they shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you, they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Even within the great Jewish story, you don't even get to the New Testament to see it. The vision of the future is one in which anyone can come to share in the inheritance of the land. All distinctions between ethnic Israel and you goyim, you Gentiles, will be gone. That's the vision. And that future, Paul says in Ephesians 1 and 2, is here now. It's already broken in. In the church of the Lord Jesus, created by his spirit, indwelling every single one of his redeemed, Jew and Gentile alike have an equal share in the inheritance. And already the entire earth has become the promised land And as the church spreads to every people group on the planet, we take up our inheritance with God by his spirit dwelling in our midst. It's exactly what Ezekiel envisioned. Now, finally, Ezekiel gives us a glimpse into the life that is enjoyed in the land. And and here we we learn, we are instructed how we are called to make use of the land that we've been given as an inheritance. So the importance of the land is that God created it to be a, 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 a stage, a display of God's glory. Him living with his creatures, enjoying this fellowship together. And we are the people called to inherit his land. We have an equal share by the Holy Spirit poured into every single one who belongs to Christ. But now, now, now what do we do? What do we do with the inheritance? Well, in the last six verses of Ezekiel, the prophet takes us back to the holy city and describes for us its 12 gates, three facing each side of the compass. Now, the ESV calls these the exits of the city, indicating that these gates, uh, they're not they're not closed, or at least we should say they're not locked, right? You got to keep the exits open. It's allowing for people to come in and out. That's the picture that Ezekiel ends with. 
Now, when John, the Apostle John, builds upon this vision at the end of Revelation 21, he also describes the holy city with 12 gates. That's why there's, it's just indisputable that Revelation 21 and 22 is built upon Ezekiel's final vision. You just can't, you can't, there's no way to disagree with that. And here's what John says in Revelation 21, 25. He says, these 12 gates will never be shut. You know why? He tells us. He says, because there will be no night there. Now, it's a symbol. It's a metaphor. It doesn't mean that, well, we're not in the kingdom of God because as far as I know, sun's going down, night's coming. It's the wrong way to read Revelation. It's not what he's talking about. What does he mean when he says, the gates will never be shut, for there will be no night there? You know what that symbol means. You, you know what it means. It means there's no fear. No fear of evil. No need to shut and lock your doors. Wouldn't that be a good day? Uh, one of my boys left their bike in the backyard, and then, like, we were working in the yard, and this kid rides by on this bike. I'm like, looks just like our bike. And guess what? It was. Wouldn't this be great? No need to lock the doors. No fear of evil. Instead, John says, the nations will walk in and out of it, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. That's what he says. And what we are saying is already this promised future has broken in on the present. In Christ, all fear is gone. All fear is gone. There is no need to lock up your inheritance. No fear of it being stolen and taken away. So the early Christians, the writer of the Hebrews boasted, could joyfully accept the plundering of their property because they knew that it would, be, it would not be lost to them forever, Hebrews 10, 34. You see the kid riding by on your bike, stone in your backyard, and you say, praise God. Can you do that? May God give us the faith to live like this too. What a credible gospel community it would make, don't you think? And then as evidence that we do believe that God has brought salvation to his world and given us a share in it, we go to work. We have work to do in his world, all of us, every single one of us, with our various gifts and callings. Do not hear that as a burden that you must carry in order for God to let you into heaven. Too many Christians can't get to the great vision of Ezekiel and the great vision of John the Revelator because they're stuck with only that question. You must hear this as a privilege that God has given you to do since he has come to dwell with us, to be with us on earth now. And because of the promise, the promise of resurrection forever. I want my life to count. 
And like every good teammate, you should desire the same thing. We share in this inheritance. Our lives matter because Christ redeemed and saved us to steward his world. So how do we go about that? What should it look like? Well, just a couple of examples as we close. I heard this week an amazing story of a man who was paralyzed, has been paralyzed since 2011. And for the first time in 12 years, he took steps thanks to a small array of electrodes implanted on top of his spinal cord that delivered nerve-stimulating pulses of electricity. I have no idea what that means, but that sounds awesome. It gets even better than that. It even stimulated some kind of natural healing as he was able to take some steps with crutches with the electrodes turned off. They put the electrodes on. He took steps for the first time. Amazing. I mean, imagine the tears that would fall from your eyes if this was your loved one. And then they turned the electrodes off, and shock. He was able to still take some steps. It's like his body began to say, oh, that's how you do it? And it began to heal in some way. Now, this is new. This is breaking news. But just imagine the possibilities that God wants to bring about through your various gifts and vocations. Somebody figured out how to do this sort of thing, and they didn't do it out of nothing. They took God's materials and applied it and brought about healing. That is the vision of God's new creation. It's a symbol, a broken signpost, But it's there. It's there to tell you and me, this is what God wants to do in your life and in your gifts and vocations. Not all of us will make headlines like that. But let no one say, I'm insignificant for the kingdom of God. My role, my occupation, my gifts, not that important. You've been given the Holy Spirit an equal share. How can you say that? Another example, maybe a little less dramatic. Took a little trip on Wednesday, last day of school. Took half day, grabbed the boys. Took a little trip down to uh, Sulphur, to the Chickasaw Cultural Center. Stayed there for the night. And uh, on the way back, could tell you a lot of things, but on the way back, we stopped at the Bedre Chocolate Factory. How many of you have been there? That's a shame. You get free chocolate when you walk in. They, they show you can stand there and look and see how they make the chocolate. Pretty impressive. Machinery, what it takes to do that. How, the, how this is all comes about from plants to that chocolate that tasted when we walked in. It's not my vocation and calling, but let me tell you, the the world is a lot sweeter 
because somebody knows how to do it. God made a world, that possibility. Okay, it's not good enough for you. What, what about just that cup of coffee that you had this morning? Some of you need better coffee. That's okay. Or a sip of good wine and all that it takes to bring it about. In Luke 19, Jesus tells a parable rebuking Israel for failing to do with the inheritance what they were supposed to do. I think the old King James says, occupy till I come. Make use of the inheritance. I put you in my world for this reason. So what then are we to do with the inheritance that we've now been given in Christ? Steward it well in ways that magnify the one who has exclusive rights of ownership to the world that he has called us to inhabit. Yeah, he just puts you in Oklahoma. Steward the land well. Maybe he'll call you somewhere else for another day. At the end of Revelation, John hears the glorious invitation, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. And like Ezekiel, he invites his readers to inhabit space and time with the power of the future that has in Jesus already broken in on the present. And as Ezekiel's vision and his book comes to a close, we are told that the name of the city forever will be Yahweh is there. As Christians, we live now in that glorious future. God, by his spirit, is here, and he's not leaving. Because of what Jesus, the Son of God, has achieved for us, we are all invited into his present kingdom and the work that he has given us to do, which he has promised because of the resurrection of Christ and your promised future resurrection, none of it will be in vain. God will make use of what you contribute by his grace, by his spirit, in his name, and make it a part of his eternal kingdom. What a day it'll be. Let us labor for it now. It's a great privilege by his grace. Let us pray. Forever the name of the city will be Yahweh is there. And your promise to us as you went to the cross was that you would not leave us or forsake us. You would be with us to the end of the age. You would be with us until the old world has completely passed in the coming of Jesus, the full consummation of the kingdom that has already broken in. And the promise is that your Holy Spirit is the very presence of God. Yahweh Shema. Yahweh is there. What a privilege then it is for us to be citizens of your kingdom already. Yes, O oh Lord, we pray as we are taught to pray. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Oh, we cannot wait until the consummation of all things. But now that we've been redeemed in Christ, now that we have come to taste of the heavenly gift, 
Now that we have come to see what our inheritance is and the guarantee of that inheritance, your promised Holy Spirit, let us now go to work no longer burdened by the questions of whether or not you are for us. How else could you have made it plain than by sending your son to be our savior? So all of us who are in Christ now, assured of your love and your presence and given your power, must get to work playing our part by the power of your spirit to labor for your kingdom. Some of it will make headlines. Most of it will not. But you who see all things, assure us that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So, empower us by your spirit to believe it and get to the task, we pray in Jesus' name.